I've been praying about priorities this week and what I would be sharing with you tonight. You know, the theme of better in Hebrews. Take your computer and a Bible program and look that up. You'll be surprised how much it talks about better. Better than what? It's a comparative word. And Paul there in Hebrews is making a comparison. He's exalting the benefits of Christianity, the reality of Christ over the shadows that you find in Judaism. I kind of feel some of that in my own life because mother was uh, from Jewish background, my father was from Baptist background, I kind of felt in between. Went to live with my father, he'd send me to Christian school, I'd go live with my mother, she sent me to Jewish school. It was interesting. At military school, they required me to pick a service to go to. They said you either go to Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish every Sunday, Sunday, interesting, even Jewish services. So I'd rotate. And they say, wait a second, last week you were at the Catholic service. I said, well, I don't want to make my mother man, so I'm at the Jewish services today. <laughs> and it would give me a kind of a broad spectrum. But Christianity certainly is superior to the shadows, the reality of Christ. As I've thought about what's better in the priorities, you think about a lot of the greatest things in the Bible. What does it tell us in 1 Corinthians 13 is the greatest thing? The greatest is love. And if you were to ask uh, Malachi, what's the most important thing? He'd probably say, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Boil it down for me. What's the most important thing? And as I've thought about that, I'm going to talk to you tonight what I think about, what I believe is the most important thing. Oh, you know, this group, the youth. Um, I was 17 when God got a hold of me. And the enthusiasm potential in this group, if you could if you could become infected with the potency of the good news. Let me tell you what I want to say. I want to begin with a quote, and it's from the Spirit of Prophecy. I'm going to read you a couple of quotes. Review and Herald, 1892. The Spirit of God, as it comes into the heart by faith, is the beginning of life eternal, the Spirit of God. What promise is less fulfilled in the church than that of the endowment of the Holy Spirit? Here is our greatest need. Whether you knew it or not, I'm telling you now, your greatest need is the Holy Spirit. Amen. The teacher must be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then the mind and the Spirit of Christ will be in him, and he will confess Jesus as a spiritual and holy life. He will give evidence that the truth has been received that has not been merely a theory, but it's been sanctified through the truth. But he has been sanctified through the truth. He can talk of Christ and him crucified in a language that savors of heaven. I want to read something else you're familiar with. First Selected Messages, page 121. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. Amen. To seek this should be our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow His blessing upon us, but because we're unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give, here's the greatest thing, His Holy Spirit to them that ask Him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it's our work, by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer, to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant His blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. 
While the people are so destitute of God's Holy Spirit, they cannot appreciate the preaching of the word. But when the Spirit's power touches their hearts, then the discourses given will not be without effect. Now, you're going to hear some wonderful discourses this week. You're going to hear some men of God open the, the word of God and share some very important truths. What is it that's going to prepare us for everything that we might receive? It's the Spirit of God. Now, as my custom is, I'd like to use a story in the Bible as a springboard for that principle. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the second book of Kings, chapter 2. And I've got a timekeeper here, so I'm going to have to pace myself. This is the story where Elijah is taken up into heaven. And Elisha is present for that experience. I think it's relevant for us for a couple of reasons. One is, before this is over, Elisha gets a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Another reason is it's talking about translation, and we're on the verge of that. We want to know what does it mean to live a life that can be translated from this world to the next without death. Also, it's a picture of Christ, and you'll understand that as I go on. Verse 1. And it came to pass, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elisha is the apprentice prophet of Elijah. Their names are similar, and it's, I'll mess it up before we're done. You just watch. I'll get them mixed up. Elijah means my God is Jehovah. Elisha means my God is Savior. Very similar, but of course different individuals. Elisha was called by Elijah when Elijah came back from his Mount Sinai experience. And you remember Elijah placed his mantle on the shoulders of young Elisha, who must have been a wealthy son because he was plowing among servants that had 11 other yoke of oxen. And in Bible times, if you had a yoke of oxen, you were middle class. If you had 12 of them, you were doing very well. That's like a John Deere tractor today. And he walked away from all of that to follow a poor prophet that had to live by a creek, was fed by birds and widows to be the servant of that man. Then Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me to Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now, don't miss this. God is preparing to fill Elisha with a double portion of Elijah's spirit. How many of you would be content to have at least what Elijah had? I mean, I would never have the audacity to ask for twice of what Elijah had. But he's about to get twice. I'd like to know what the, the secret is. Wouldn't you? One secret is, he said, I'm not staying here. I'm following you. Amen. Wherever you go, I'm going. And when Elisha, there I did it, when Elijah <laughs> went to the house of God, Elisha went with him. The word Bethel means house of God. We need to be willing to follow our Lord when he goes to the house of God. Uh, if you miss the point, if you don't have enough faith to get you to church once a week, you probably don't have enough to get you to heaven. <laughs> Was that too deep? I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel together. 
And the sons of the prophets who were with him at Bethel came to Elisha, and they said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? He said, Yes, I know it. Hold your peace. Keep silent. Now they were saying, you know, word is out through the prophets that God is going to take away uh, Elijah to heaven. And he was going through the circuit of the schools of the prophets trying to encourage them before he ascended. Now Elijah in this story is something like Jesus. What did Jesus do before he ascended to heaven? After his resurrection, he spent 40 days meeting here and there with the apostles for what purpose? To open the scriptures, to encourage them, because he was going to go up. And when he went up, he sent the Spirit, didn't he? You see the parallel here? The sons of the prophets were saying, you're going to be the resident prophet when he ascends. And Elijah was saying, as the Father has sent me, Elisha, so I'm sending you. I've trained you to complete the work of revival that I've started. As Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And in the same way that uh, there were schools of the prophets back then, and Jesus had the apostles, I believe God wants to have schools of the prophets in the last days where people come together with a common love for the truth. And that's what we want this to be, WYC. That's what we want Weimar to be, way more. A school of the prophets, amen? and AFCO and the whole thing. And he, when they said he's going to be taken away, he said, hold your peace. Why did he say that? Was he happy that uh, his boss was going to be gone? Or was he sorry? He was happy to serve Elijah. Matter of fact, one time when Elisha was being introduced to the king of Israel, that he said, this is the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And he was content. What a menial job. He was content, the same way Jesus poured water on the feet of the disciples, to be a servant. Do you love serving Jesus? In heaven, will you be pleased to be a Gibeonite, a gatekeeper? If I can just be there, uh, watching the door, praise the Lord. Amen. People ask me questions. Oh, Doug, I don't know if I want to go to heaven if my pet's not going to be there. <laughs> you know, I hope Jesus doesn't come before I get to get married as though they'll be pining in heaven through eternity. I Don't worry, friends, this is not it. I guarantee you will not be disappointed if you get there if you did not experience matrimony on earth first. So don't worry about that. Just get there, I promise you. And if I'm wrong, I'll apologize. You come up to me, okay? I'll be winking at you when you get there. Say, how you doing? Are you happy? Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here now, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he said, as your soul lives, and as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho together. The word Jericho, they're not sure. It's a very ancient word. It either means fragrance, I prefer to mean that, or it means moon. And uh, I haven't found an answer. I prefer to think fragrance. Sometimes the Lord leaves us in fragrant places. He starts out in Gilgal, and that actually means circle. Sometimes the Lord leads us in circles. Wherever the Lord leads us, you stay with him. And again, the sons of the prophets come out and say the same thing. Do you not know the Lord is going to take away your master from your head? He said, I know it. Hold your peace. Keep silent. And Elijah said to him, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on to Jordan together. 
Jordan means descending. As a matter of fact, it's the lowest river on the earth. It's a symbol for death. Jordan is a symbol for death, burial, and resurrection. How many hymns have you sung before? It talks about Jordan's billows and crossing the Jordan. It all talks about it's symbolic of death. The, the hymn writers knew that. And sometimes the Lord leads us uh, through the valley of the shadow, and we follow him there, too. We take up our cross, and we follow him to our crucifixion. And he said, wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. Amen? Amen? So they go on towards the Jordan together. And the sons of the prophets, verse 5, who were at Jericho, came to Elisha. I'm sorry, I, I missed a verse. And the men's of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. Now the two of them stood by the Jordan. And Elijah took up his mantle and rolled it up. And he struck the water. And it was divided this way and that. So the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now they're crossing over Jordan, but there's a problem. It's springtime. Probably, because other times of the year, you can get across it in the summer. I was disappointed when I went to Israel because I heard about the mighty Jordan. I became a Christian. I went to Israel, and I expected to see something like the Missouri or the Mississippi. And you can throw a rock across it. Uh, certain times of the year, it's a series of stagnating pools. And you read about the Jordan River. So the fact that it was at flood stage implicates that it might even be the springtime which is the time of year when Jesus was uh, crucified. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets watched, and they come there, and what does Elijah do? He takes off this mantle. Now, if Elijah is a type of Christ, what would his robe represent? If the Jordan River is a symbol of death, how do you get across? What was it that made it possible for him to get across? It's Christ's robe that makes it possible for us to get across. The only earthly possession that Jesus left behind was a blood-stained robe. Isn't that right? Everything else was gambled away or torn up. They took his robe off, they whipped him, and they put it back on. It's blood-stained. What did Jacob's sons present to their father to cover their sin? Wasn't it the blood-stained robe of Joseph? What is it that makes it possible for you and I to go to that feast. Doesn't the father give us a robe when the prodigals come home? That's the same robe. Uh, Elisha had seen that robe before. That was the same mantle that he placed on his shoulders when he first called him in justification. And now he's placing it on him in sanctification because he's followed him for several years and he has been transformed by beholding. See the difference? Same mantle, different function. First, he places it on him, saying, you've been called. He begins to follow. We're justified. But when it's over, he owns the robe. Stay with me. I picture he rolls it up. Any of you ever get rat-tailed with a towel before? If you went to military school, you know what I'm talking about. And he, and the river just parts. And you notice they go over on dry ground. You know why it says that? He didn't go slogging through the mud and come up dirty on the other side. The fact that it says he went over on dry ground means he came up clean. And how is it that we make it to the other side of Jordan clean? It's going to be the robe of Christ. It's his righteousness. Amen? Amen. You can speak up. I don't think you're going to bother the neighbors. 
So when they had crossed over, Elijah says to Elisha, ask what I might do for you before I'm taken away from you. Wow, that's impressive. Here you've got the greatest of the prophets. Who is it that appears to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Old Testament closes with, remember the law of Moses? Behold, I send Elijah. Elijah in his life is the essence of the power of the prophets. He prays, it stops raining. He prays and rain comes down. He prays and fire comes down. Matter of fact, three times he prays and fire comes down. He tells kings what to do. And then he says to you, I'm getting ready to go meet with the Lord. He's sending a limo of angels. Anything I can do for you before I leave? What would you ask for? Don't think, think now, don't think small. Think about the best thing. And whatever it is you think about, think about something better. You know, if I were to tell you the greatest of these is love. Could there be something greater than that? Well, think about it. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. If you've got the Holy Spirit, then you've got love. But you're not going to have His love without the Holy Spirit. So what is, when you get right down to the root, is there something more valuable that you could ask for than the Holy Spirit. Every other good thing that you might consider that leads to the blessed hope begins with God in you. The most important thing, the greatest need, what did Solomon, what did he really pray for when he said, give me wisdom? Well, you read in Isaiah chapter 1, it is one of the gifts of the Spirit is wisdom. He was asking for the Holy Spirit. That's the last thing that Samson prayed for, isn't it? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's where his strength came from. Every good and perfect gift that you could ask for is going to be summed up in the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then uh, you can't be prepared. Now, having said that, let me give you some encouragement. God's Spirit comes in different degrees. I believe everybody here has the Holy Spirit. Did Jesus have the Holy Spirit before his baptism? Well, that wasn't a difficult question. Can you imagine any time in Jesus' life he didn't have the Holy Spirit? But did the Holy Spirit anoint him in a special way at his baptism? Did the apostles have the Holy Spirit before Pentecost? Sure. Matter of fact, in the upper room he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. But they received a special filling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And so what we're talking about here is not a mist or a fog of the Spirit, not a little bit of moisture. We're talking about really praying for the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the most desperate need of the church right now in the last days. And it's the most desperate need in my life. It's the most desperate need in your life. I believe before Jesus comes back, he's going to send the Spirit and power of Elijah again. Do you believe that? Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. Does that mean Elijah's going to be resurrected and walking around? Uh, somebody sent me a YouTube email of some nut in Russia who claims that he's Jesus, and he's got this whole following. And there are probably people out there, I've met folks that claim to be Elijah. 
And when the Bible said, I'll send you Elijah again, he wasn't talking about Elijah resurrected. That's why when they asked John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He said, no. Because they were asking John, are you Elijah resurrected? And they were asking the wrong question. But was John the Baptist Elijah in the spirit? Yes. yes. I don't, I'm not talking about reincarnation. But he had the spirit and power of Elijah. Who was the first one who had the spirit and power of Elijah? Elisha. So you mean that Elisha did not register a trademark and get a patent on the Holy Spirit of Elijah? And not only did Elisha get it, but John the Baptist got it? Does that mean that you and I could get it? And I think we should. That's why this story is important. Because I think the Lord wants to baptize his people in the last days with the spirit and power of Elijah to do the work of Elijah and Elisha. And if Elisha needed a double portion in our day, we need a triple portion. Oh, Pastor Doug, let's not get carried away. Please tell me where in the Bible somebody asked for too much from God. I mean, Joshua says, I want the sun to stand still. And does the Lord say, come on, Joshua, let's, you know, let's not get carried away. Or is the Lord always pleased when we ask for big things? Matter of fact, I see that the Lord is displeased when we ask too little. When Elisha was an old man, filled with a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and the king of Israel came in to see him, and he said, take arrows and smite the ground. He smote the ground three times, and the man of God was wroth with him. He said, you should have smitten the ground five or six times. You didn't think big enough. You would have had five or six victories against the Assyrians. But now you're only going to have three. And Jesus said, up till now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask. He's infinitely more willing to give us his spirit. We just read that to you in that opening quote. Than we are to ask. He is more willing to give you the Holy Spirit than an earthly father to give a hungry child food. And it's not like, I mean, my child might get hungry and I could be out of food. But if you need the Holy Spirit, you never need to worry that God's going to say the refrigerator's empty. He will always have it to give you. So the problem is not that he doesn't have it or that he doesn't want to give it. What is the problem? We're not asking. The problem isn't that people out there don't want to hear the gospel. The harvest is great. The laborers are few. What we need is a revival of a thirst for God. I like Elisha. Wherever you go, like Ruth, I will go. That's a great verse for a wedding. Where you go, I will go. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. God do so to me and more also if aught but death separate you and me. That's a pledge we can make to Jesus. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. That's what this is all about. We need the Holy Spirit. It's a power from within that is being wasted right now. You know, I, I'm really interested in alternate energy. And I was interested in it before it was popular. Uh, our house up in the hills was uh, independently powered 20-something years ago. I forget. Uh, a couple of you, Don was at our house a, what, a couple weeks ago, Don, up in Covalo. We got all the comforts right. Come from the sun. I went to the big island of Hawaii years ago. And when I first drove around the island, I, I was just so amazed. There is no place on the planet that I know of that has more potential for natural power than Hawaii, the big island. You go over towards Kona, the sun shines all the time. Solar power galore. You go to Waimea, the wind blows all the time. Wind power. 
You can go down to the South Point and there's tidal power coming off the Pacific, uninterrupted un, in, exposure to Pacific currents and tides. You go to the volcanic part and you can have geothermal power. Just every, you go to Hilo, rains there, what, 300 inches a year, water power galore. And yet you'd be surprised how much of the island is powered by diesel. <laughs> Stinking diesel. <laughs> and they got all this potential for power. I think they're starting to turn things around there. They're doing more since I first came. Uh, you know, in the church, I see the same dynamic. I've never yet seen a project in a church abandoned for lack of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes proposals will come up on church boards. They'll say, you know, we don't have enough money for that. We better wait, postpone. See if we can get the money. But a whole lot of projects come through churches that, that we just don't have the spirit for. And we voted through. And we might even go through with the program. And you wonder why it's not successful. It's because we go through all the motions using diesel. What I'm just saying right now is, I think, a very important point. You can be deceived into thinking you're God's, using God's power when it's really human power. You might look at Hawaii and say, wow, what a natural dynamo, that whole island, and not know it's really being driven by diesel. We see all kinds of activity in the church, and it's just a lot of it is men's devising, and it's not the moving of the spirit, which is what we need. Well, when that happens, all of the things we plan, and you know, at Amazing Facts, we're always thinking about you know, what's going to work, and marketing, and what will get people's attention, and how do we get people involved. And, and I know in my heart, a lot of times what we're doing is we're trying to make things happen which is a substitute for the outpouring of the Spirit. Because when God's Spirit is poured out, I wonder how did Peter do it without PowerPoint? <laughs> how did the apostles preach to thousands without a PA system? And we've got you know, a few hundred. How did they take the message to the then civilized world without printing presses? And the answer is one word. Well, it's two words. Holy Spirit. It's one thing. They were able to do it because they had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We need the latter rain to fall upon us. And especially now, Satan has been honing his skills for thousands of years on how to distract and deceive men. The worldliness in the world is more worldly than it's ever been. That makes sense? Yeah. And it, it, you know, the church is obviously being influenced by it. I heard a pastor, uh, Elder Frizee. No, it's actually Elder Brizzy. Sorry, they sound the same. Floyd Brizzy. Used to be ministerial director in North America. He explained one time at a camp meeting that what he had observed is his, in his time as a minister that it seems like the church is always content to have higher standards than the world. Just as long as we're higher than the world, we feel like we're okay. But the world standards are continually going down. And so what happens is, here you've got the standards of the world, the standards of the church. And then over time, as the standards of the world go down, and the church says, well, we're better than the world. That's all we got to worry about. But what's happened is, eventually, we get to where our standards could even be lower than the standards of the world, and we're still patting ourselves on the back. Case in point, I used to go to public school in New York City. They're not exactly paragons of modesty. 
And I remember a girl lived upstairs from us, Kathy Ornstein. You don't know who she is. She'll never hear this tape. <laughs> Getting sent home from public school in New York City for immodest dress. But you could wear today in Christian schools what she wore to public school in New York back then. That's just one of a thousand examples of what I'm talking about. And so with the world pushing us, you need to have a deeper power that's guiding you. Otherwise, you're going to be battered about by every wind of doctrine. You know, it's something like an iceberg. You get a big iceberg, and it's amazing. You could be out there in the ocean. You'll see the iceberg moving against the wind. And you're going, how is the iceberg moving against the wind? The wind is blowing south, and the iceberg is coming north. And the answer is because most of the iceberg is under the water, and the current is not going the same way as the wind. It's got something deeper that's controlling its direction. And we all need something anchored deeper that's controlling our direction. It's got to be that power from within. I want to get back to my story here. So they come across the Jordan. And Elijah says to Elisha, ask what I might do for you before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Why did he ask for a double portion of his spirit? I mean, why a double portion? Who was it that got a double portion? According to the Bible, the firstborn son would get a double portion. How many children did Elijah have? Who would want to be married to Elijah? I mean, you know, living by a creek, fed by ravens, and running from the mountains, and, you know, I don't think his wife would have appreciated his living with a widow if he was married. I don't think he was. He basically adopted Elisha. And Elisha said, look, I know you're not a rich prophet, but I get a double, portion, a double portion of your most valued possession. And his most valued possession was the Spirit of God within him. He said, I want a double portion. You know, another reason I think he asked for a double portion is because he knew he loved him. Why did Elkanah give a double portion to Hannah? He says, because he loved her. So he's saying, Lord, if, if you've adopted me, and if you love me, I want a double portion. And you and I can say the same thing to Jesus. Does Jesus adopt us? Does he call us his sons and daughters that in which he's well pleased when we're baptized? Does he love us? And then why is he going to tell us no if we ask for a double portion of his spirit? And we need it, friends, today. I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me. I know I need it. I don't know how we can live as Christ lived in this world today without the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the disciples needed it back then, and they prayed for Pentecost, we need another Pentecost now. It's the most important thing we could ask for. So he goes on, he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. Elijah said, you have asked for a hard thing, or you've asked for a big thing. Nevertheless, notice, if, there's a criteria. If you see me when I am taken from you, it will be so for you. But if not, it will not be so. So what is the criteria in order for him to receive a, a double portion of the Spirit? He said, you need to see me lifted up. You got that? Isn't that what he's saying? 
I mean, he's looking at Elijah right now. He's not saying, if you see me now, because he saw him then. He's saying, if you see me, go up. Then it will be done. There's something in there for us. Verse 11, it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire, about 500 years later, it was going to be tongues of fire, separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind. He went up into heaven. Notice verse 12, and Elisha saw it. Christ says, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Christ said to the disciples after six days, he said, or he said, Verily I say unto you, Mark chapter 9, there are some of you standing here will not taste of death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days he took them up. And they had a revelation. Matter of fact, they saw Elijah there, didn't they? As we see Christ exalted, not only did they see Jesus lifted up on the cross, that prepared them to receive the Holy Spirit with love. They saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And as he ascended, he blessed them and said, I am with you wherever you go. Go, teach all nations. Did that knowledge of seeing Christ ascend to the presence of the Father give them a better hope? Did they ever get discouraged from that point on that he had forgotten them or forsaken them? Did they live the rest of their lives not worrying about what people think, but realizing that God was always watching? Not being concerned with what the world thought of them, but much more preoccupied with what God thought of them, because they saw Jesus go. He didn't just snap and disappear. They saw him go, and they watched. And he said, I'm with you always. And they just always had this idea that he was with them wherever they went. It's a lot easier to live a spiritual life if you realize you're living in the sight of a holy God. I think we get into trouble when we forget that God's watching, like Jonah. I think we can run away. And God can... You, Whither shall I flee from your presence? You can go to the digestive system of a sea monster at the bottom of the mountains. He's there, right? He's watching you wherever you go. And I'm glad I mentioned that because I think there might be some Jonas here. God's calling you and you're running. And he's, he wants you to dedicate your life to ministry. And Elisha saw it. And he cried out and said, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen, Boy, was that ever true. The power of Israel was not in its army. The power of Israel was in God's spirit. It didn't matter if they had an army. If you got one Samson with the spirit of God, he took on a whole army. Isn't that right? That one prophet. And you know, later on, Elisha, who's got a double portion of God's spirit, he blinds a whole army. And he leads them into the city of Samaria. And then he opens their eyes, and they're surrounded by the Israelites. That's why they, even when Elisha was dying, you know what the king of Israel said to him? Same thing. Same thing Elisha said to Elijah. The king of Israel said to Elisha when he was dying. He said, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Because the power of God's people was in the relationship with the Lord through the prophet. That prophet had the word of God in him. And that was, that was their connection. That was their power. Now catch this. We're not done yet. So he saw him no more. And he took hold on his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. What does clothing represent? 
Well, it's going to be either righteousness or unrighteousness, but it's the character. Depends on whose clothing it is. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. I think it's significant that it says he took his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces and he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. Now, I'm maybe a little romantic and I can't prove this, but you can't disprove it, so I'm going to say it. But I think that as Elijah was being caught up to heaven, as that angelic vehicle was going up in that vortex, that Elijah tapped the angels and said, could you just put it in neutral for a moment? And he looked down at Elisha and said, I won't be needing this anymore. And he tossed his mantle down to him. It says that it had fallen from him. I think that he passed it on, so to speak. And you notice that Elisha had to take it up. Christ has provided righteousness for you and me, but I won't do you any good unless you take it up. There's a theology circulating today that everybody's law, everybody's saved, you've got to choose to be lost. That's not what I read in the Bible. The Bible says that we're all in darkness and we need to embrace the light. And we're lost and we need to be found. We're dead and we need to be made alive. I mean, all through the Bible is the language of that we get to make a choice. And it's a choice of choosing life, is what Moses said. And so, you know, just in case you're, hopefully nobody here is mixed up with that. You've got to take it up. Jesus has written you a check, but you've got to cash it, friends. He's not going to force it upon you. He took up the mantle that had fallen from him after tearing his own. You get that, friends? You see the picture here? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. Tears their own. Takes up Elijah's mantle. You know blind Bartimaeus? After Jesus called him, it says, casting aside his garment. What kind of garment do you think a blind beggar wore? If you're blind, you don't even know if it's dirty. Probably didn't look too good. Casting it aside, he came to Jesus. How do we come to Jesus? We rend our robes, we, our self-righteousness, and we come. Adam and Eve had to toss off their fig leaves to take up the garments that God made for them. Those garments came from the death of a lamb. We take the robe that Jesus gives us. It's a gift. He took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and he goes back and he stands by the bank of the Jordan River. And he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And he struck the water, and it was divided this way and that. You know, uh, why did he say that? Was he doubting? Or is he saying, I'm going to do what Jesus, I'm going to do exactly what Elijah did, the way Elijah did it, and I'm expecting the same results that he had. And that's, I think, a pattern for you and me. Our Christ has ascended. He has sent the Holy Spirit. We need to take it up and then try to model his behavior. And he's also claiming the promise. He's saying, Elijah made a promise. He said, if I see him taken up, I will have a double portion of his spirit. And now I want to see my first example of that spirit. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? I want to have the power of Elijah. And he strikes the water and it parts again. And he goes across on dry ground. And it says here that uh, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came before him and bowed to the ground before him. It's like the disciples said, all hail, when they came to Jesus. They could look at his face, like Moses when he came down the mountain. His face was shining. How many of you think Elisha's face was shining after that experience? He was filled with the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, here's the good news for you. 
What you're hearing right now is the word of God. It's not me. This is the Bible I'm reading you. What God did for Elisha because he asked. What Jesus did for the apostles. What he did for John the Baptist in giving him the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to do again in the last days. The disciples were on their knees putting away their differences when God poured out the Holy Spirit, humbling themselves, and he sent the power. The children of Israel, when they fell down there, when Elijah was on Mount Carmel, they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. They were gathered together, and God sent the rain. I think it's going to be in a meeting, just like this kind of meeting, when God sends the Holy Spirit. And what we need to do is ask him. He's infinitely more willing to give it than we are to ask for it. You know, I heard a story one time about some uh, sailors that their ship went down. They managed to get into the lifeboat, but they didn't secure very much water. And they floated around in this lifeboat in the Atlantic Ocean for days and uh, nearly died of thirst. Uh, just sunburnt and miserable. And after several days of floating around, a rescuing vessel came by. And the first thing they said when they were uh, being brought ashore or brought on board to the rescuing vessel is water, water, water. And the captain, a little bit perplexed, he said, why are you so thirsty? And they said, because there's nothing to drink. You know, it's interesting. You can't live without water and you can't live without salt. But if you drink salt water, your kidneys will shut down. There's too much salt concentration in seawater. And the captain said, you're floating in fresh water. They happen to be in that part of the Atlantic where the Amazon River pushes fresh water over 100 miles out into the ocean. And though it might have been a little briny, it was drinkable. And here they were floating in it and dying of thirst. I'd submit to you that uh, that's probably a fitting description of many in the church today. They know something's missing. They're dying of thirst. They, the Lord wants to send the latter rain. And you just got to lower your buckets. Does God say, I tell you what, I'm going to pour out the Holy Spirit when the prophetic clock reaches a certain point? Or did God already send the Spirit 2,000 years ago? Didn't Christ say that when I go, I'll send the Comforter? Do you know where in the Bible he printed a retraction on that? Then if it's still true, if you still believe the Word of God, then we can ask for the Holy Spirit with the exact same authority as Elisha, as John the Baptist, as the apostles, and expect results. Amen. Be it unto you according to your faith. Ask ye of the Lord showers in the time of the latter rain, and he'll send flashing clouds. We need to be asking for the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is our best hope. That is our better hope. And I'd like to close this meeting with prayer. And I, I recognize it's a little awkward with the way we're situated here to kneel and pray. I'm hoping that we're going to stand and pray. I'm hoping that you will be gathering in groups and kneel and pray all throughout this weekend. What's going to really bring the Spirit down on this meeting is prayer. Personal prayer. Some of you may want to take some time to pray by yourself, pray in groups. Just spontaneously as you share with each other what you're looking for in God and what you want from this meeting. See, let's pray about that right now. And you're going to see the presence of God come down on this meeting. Amen. Is that your desire? Amen. Let's stand and ask him right now. Lord, this is the better hope. 
that instead of us going through our, our lives with a, a man-made experience driven by human power, that we might be driven by the power of your spirit. Lord, without you, we can do nothing, but we believe all things are possible through Christ. Father, I pray that you will pour out your Holy Spirit, not because we're worthy, but because we're very needy. It's our greatest need. We look in the world around us and we see so much evidence, more than ever. Everything from the, the rattling of swords with World War III and the economy and the, the, the worldliness and the immorality. We see the days of Lot and Noah all rolled into one. And we know Jesus is coming soon. And Lord, we should have been praying a lot sooner, a lot more for the gift of the Spirit, but we're praying now. Please send your spirit. Forgive our sins. We want to humble ourselves before you and ask you, Lord, to cover us with Jesus' blood. We're choosing to take up that robe that he left in this world to cover the sins of the world, his righteousness. And not only are we praying for justification, Lord, that we can come to you just like we are, but we're praying for sanctification, that you can give us power to be holy, that there can be that deeper power that will lead us Lord, I pray that you'll be with each person in a special way. Be with those who are to speak and to lead out in this event. Fill them with your spirit that they might communicate a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And as we open the word, we pray that a baptism of the spirit will come upon us. Bless us, Lord. We're not coming asking that uh, we have anything to plead other than our great need. And we're asking in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen.